All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. I feel very antiquated my use of text edit now that, that, that that's text real. Text next product. It is. It's unbelievable. There's so much still there. For next, totally. Uh, the screenshot icon finally changed. It, it was that like big camera until oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yosemite, and it finally changed that little thing. That was like the oh. last asset remaining. <laughs> Crazy, I know. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Hello, GeekWire. Hey, GeekWire. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, welcome to episode 23 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. On today's episode, we will be covering a cornerstone of technology today, Apple's 1997 acquisition of Next. So... Mm. Yeah, I think this is one that we've been talking about doing for a very long time. Um, the original tagline of our show was uh, technology acquisitions that actually went well. And uh, kind of we, we've deviated from that a little bit, and we've, we've gotten into talking about um, all sorts of acquisitions, recent ones, ones we think didn't go well. Um, but this one is super, super true to our roots. So excited to be here and, and talk about it today. Yeah, this is going to be a blast. And uh, big, big thank you to GeekWire and yes. John and Todd and everybody for hosting us here. This is our first live show, so um, we're streaming on Facebook. Uh, you guys will get to see how the sausage is made. <laughs> yep. uh, thanks for sticking with us, and uh, we will post it on, uh, on iTunes and our website, acquired.fm, uh, once we edit it. Uh, with that, we'll dive in. So next, uh, like Ben was saying, uh, I've been looking forward to doing this one for a long time as uh, both... Um, devoted Apple users, uh, both of us, uh, this is, um, this is really the story of how, you know, uh, what I love about it is it's kind of like, this is the hero story of Steve Jobs. You know, he had initial success, the initial arc, and then he was off in the wilderness at Next for 10 years. Then he comes back to Apple 
and here we are today where Apple is the most valuable company in the world. Uh, yeah. How did this happen? Uh, and truly like a drama, right? I mean, you, you can't script this stuff. This, uh, they, they've literally made three movies about it because of <laughs> how kind of crazy this journey is. So we want to focus just today on kind of the, uh, the, the part picking up at when, when Steve started next and how that went integrating that into Apple. Yeah. So we start our journey in 1984, a very good year. That was the year I was born. <laughs> uh, and Steve Jobs is still at Apple for the first time, the company he co-founded with Steve Wozniak. Um, and what's going on at, at this time is the personal computer has happened, driven by Apple and the Macintosh. Uh, Apple's a public company, very valuable. Um, but computing has entered a new wave, and we're in the era of the workstation at this point. Mm -hmm. and, and I had to do a bunch of Googling and Wikipedia because... I really had no clue what a workstation was. I think there were a bunch of these uh, in college in the computer lab somewhere, and they were made by Sun, and I didn't really know what they did. <laughs> um, this is dating us a little bit. Yeah, dating us a little <laughs> bit. So workstations, it turns out, um, are really just personal computers on steroids for the time. Now they're like pitifully, pitifully underpowered. Um, but what kind of defined a workstation was a, quote, 3M computer. And a 3M computer had one megabyte of memory, mm -hmm. megabyte of memory, <laughs> um, had a megapixel display uh, that could display one megapixel's worth of content, and it had a megaflops of computing performance. That is floating point operations per second then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes people added a fourth M to the definition of a workstation, and that was a megapenny which was how much these things cost, which was about $10,000 a pop. So these are not personal computers. They're mostly used um, at universities for research, for scientific research, for technical research. Large corporations use them. But these aren't the, like, the, the server mainframes of the old day. These are single-use computers that are networks that people can log into them, but one user uses them at a time. Gotcha. So that's what's going on. And Apple is kind of in a quandary because this is... This is the computing era of the workstation, but Apple has no offering in the workstation. Um, they're a PC company, uh, and just down the street from them, Sun Microsystems has been started uh, from Stanford, Stanford University Network, hence the Sun Microsystems. Um, and Sun is the darling of technology. They are the fastest growing company in America mm -hmm. in the 1980s. They go from founding to $1 billion of revenue in six years. So Steve's still at Apple. All this is going on. He's no longer the CEO. John Scully is the CEO. And, and to put this in uh, context around times that, that computers have been released, this is right after the Macintosh is released, right? Uh, a couple years after the Macintosh is released. So this is, this is 1984. And Steve gets put in charge of a new division at Apple called the Super Micro Division. Mm -hmm. And that combines the Macintosh and the Lisa. And his remit is to basically start Apple's entry into this workstation uh, market. Uh, mm -hmm. And so he's working on a top secret project codenamed the Big Mac. <laughs> and the goal, uh, what he's trying to do is to take a workstation powered computer, uh, a 3M, and get rid of the 4th M and sell it for $500. He wants to put workstation-esque power into personal computers, make them affordable to everybody, students, and individuals. Um, so that's what he's working on. And it's not, unfortunately, going so well. So um, turns out, with the technology at the time, it's really hard to uh, build these workstation computers with off-the-shelf components yep. uh, and cheaper components. And so Steve isn't doing too good a job. And Scully and the board are starting to lose faith in him. Um, so in May of 1985... Uh, Scully, the CEO, and Arthur Rock, who is a venture capitalist on the board. Mm -hmm. Be wary of venture capitalists out there. <laughs> Says the VC. <laughs> Says the venture capitalist. Um, so they decide that enough is enough, and they're going to remove Steve from being in charge of this new division, the super micro division, and they're basically going to just have him you know, be a figurehead for the company. So they sideline him. He actually, his office gets moved across the street to essentially an empty building. Uh, and he's still at Apple at this point. He's still the chairman of Apple, but he has no day-to-day -day responsibilities. Hmm. And so he's, um, he's, you know, he refers to this as kind of being off. He calls it being in Siberia. 
Uh, and so for the <laughs> summer of 1985, he's just hanging out. He has nothing to do. Um, but he's thinking about this problem. Um, and, uh, and this goes on for the summer. And, and an interesting thing happens. So over the summer, while Steve's hanging out, he ends up meeting this guy named Paul Berg, and Paul is uh, a Nobel laureate in chemistry. He's a professor at Stanford in the chemistry department. And he's won the Nobel Prize for chemistry. And he complains to Steve and he says, hey, like, we've got these workstations, you know, sun workstations at Stanford, um, but they're really, really expensive. And I'm trying to teach all these undergrads about DNA and recombinant DNA. Um, and there's no way, like, they can't get enough time on the workstations to use them to model DNA computationally. And wet labs are, like, even more expensive than that. They can't work with right. it, actually. And so they're, they're having a really hard time learning how to do this. And so this just, like, doubly strikes the fire in Steve. Like, he can't, he can't handle this. You know, he sees this problem. And so he's, he says, you know, I, we need to get these powerful computers into the hands of students uh, to be able to learn and build new things, and we need to get the price point down, but we, need, we can't compromise on the power. Yep. So by the end of the summer, he's been thinking about this. He decides to resign from Apple and start a new company to pursue this vision of finally getting the workstation affordable into and merging it with the personal computer. Now, of course, Apple's Apple's business had been selling into education, not necessarily into these you know universities that that needed these for um, super horsepower reasons, right? Of doing a, no. a lot of really complex selling stuff. Selling to but students, selling to computer labs for undergrads and high school students to use. Right. Um, that was a big part of their business. Um, F- feels a little competitive. So here's what happens: September thirteenth. Jobs resigns, and, and there have been books written about this and movies, um, all of which tell slightly different stories. So here's as best we can figure out what happens. Jobs resigns on September 13th, and he tells the board he's going to start a new computer company, um, and he's going to take several people from the supermicro division mm-hmm. with him. Um, uh, those people are Joanna Hoffman. If you saw the, uh, the Michael Fassbender movie, she's uh, this is... Um, Scarlett Johansson, I think, plays her. Uh, she's one of the stars of the movie. Uh, Bud Tribble, uh, George Crow, Rich Page, Susan Barnes, Susan Carey, and Daniel Lewin. Mm-hmm. Um, so he takes these employees with him, and Apple Board says, okay. Two weeks later, they sue Jobs for two things. One, stealing trade secrets from Apple mm-hmm. and employees. Uh, and two, a breach of fiduciary duty as the chairman and board member of Apple <laughs> basically resigning and then going and starting a new computer company. So, uh, so absolutely wasting no time. I mean, for, for anyone who's been in these environments, a lot, of, a lot of times they drag on and on and on, and years later get a cease and desist or things like that. This is immediate action. Immediate action. Like, company Steve founded, two weeks later, boom, lawsuit that Scully hits him with. And this is one of the things that just totally destroys his relationship with Scully. Because um, it's unclear that, like, it was not good before then, but, like, then he sues him. And so <laughs> Steve, Steve gives this interview in Newsweek, which is awesome. We'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, this is right after he leaves Apple. And um, he says in it, he's asked about this, and he says, uh, it's hard to think that a $2 billion company with 4,300-plus people couldn't compete with six people in blue jeans. <laughs> uh, thus is the classic startup story, right? Classic startup story. So um, they eventually, they, they pretty quickly settle the case. And the terms of the settlement, uh, they settle in January 1986, uh, are that next, the new company Steve is starting, uh, cannot compete with Apple. And Apple gets to review any products that Next makes and releases before Next releases them. And if they determine them to be competitive, then they can sue again. So uh, Steve's okay with this, but he's just had enough. In February, he sells all of his Apple stock except one share so that he can still go to shareholder meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Such a Steve move. Um, So... They get underway, and, and Steve's just had this, you know, wild experience at Apple, and, you know, he's, much ink has been spilled on this. But he decides he really wants to do things his own way this time. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not going to be beholden to an external CEO, not going to be beholden to a board. So, so what does he do? Um, <laughs> he spends $100,000 right off. The, well, first off, he puts $7 million of his own money into the company to get it started. Yep. And he spends $100,000 right off the bat 
to get a really famous graphic designer and brand consultant. Paul to, Rand. Paul Rand. Yeah. Um, to come up with the name and the branding and the logo of this company. And uh, Paul delivers a 100-page brochure naming the company Next, all capital except for the lowercase e, which stands for education, mm. <laughs> uh, and coming up with the logo, which at, is... A, at, an, at an exact 28-degree angle? At, at an exact 28-degree angle. So the Next logo is rotated at precisely 28 degrees. Now, for, for a lot of people who have commissioned um, logo work and kind of brand books before, a lot of times there's an iterative process where, where you get options and you review and you pick from one of the three, things like that. This was, you know, Paul Rand goes away into a cave, comes back with one fully formed idea and says, yeah. here you go. 100 pages on and, this one idea. And the 100K was delivered up front. Yeah, insane. <laughs> so, but Steve loves it. He goes with it. So the second thing he does... Um, he rents office space. And you know, like they're like a brand new startup, like you're gonna get a scrappy, like, you know, co-working space. Like, no, not for Steve. He finds the most expensive real estate in Palo Alto, rents a pretty big office with a staircase in it designed by IM Pei, <laughs> the famous architect. Um, and uh, and and that's their first office. Later on, they moved to Redwood City uh, mm. into a whole complex designed by IM Pei. Uh, <laughs> and they're like Ames chairs everywhere and like $10,000 leather sofas and whatnot. Um, so, so, so that's what he does on the setting up the company. Um, he also decides that he has some new management theories that he wants to test out. So... The company is not a company, it's a community, and there are members of the community, there aren't employees. This sounds very like Valve, like, you know, before Valve. Um, and, uh, and so there, everybody can see each other's salary in the company, there's complete transparency, but that's not that interesting because there are only two salaries in the company. Uh, if you joined before 1986, you made $75,000 a year. If you joined after 1986, you made $50,000 a year. That's it. Everybody. It, it's really interesting to think about this in the context of Apple's secrecy now. This was Jobs sort of laying out, okay, we're going we're gonna to give this a chance. We're yep. going to let everybody know everything uh, about you know, other employees within the company, about all the secrets of the company, and we're going to see if making them kind of community members uh, allows us to not be so tight with our secrecy. And uh, kind of at the point that that was violated, which of course it's going to happen when you start to hit scale, that's when he switched modes and said, "Nope, you know this. The the, the rest of the time, um, you know, when I when we go back to Apple, this is going to be an entirely top secret, very controlled, top down organization." Yep. And um, what's uh, super? He talks a little bit about this. Like he just come from this political ouster at Apple, and he's trying to avoid politics, uh, and that's like the whole genesis of why he does it this way. And obviously, it doesn't really work. Um, but interesting that you know he did, he does this experiment, um, and uh, for a long time, Next did eventually change this and uh, had different salaries and everything. But he's right. super idealistic at the get go, um, and uh, so so the only question is kind of like, well, what is Next actually going to do? And it's this big secret. Like everybody wants to know what is Next doing. Like they know they're targeting education and they want to make powerful computers, but like what is it exactly? Um, and around this time, uh, Ross Perot. Uh, of uh, of Ross Perot fame, uh, failed uh, presidential candidate. Here's about uh, what Steve's up to, and he decides he wants to get involved. And and Ross actually, uh, some people know this, but not all. Uh, he's actually a technology entrepreneur himself. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd founded two technology companies um, that were acquired, one by GM uh, and one by uh, one by Dell eventually. Um, and so he invests twenty million dollars in Next at a $125 million valuation. Remember, this is 1986-87. So, you know, thinking about with inflation and the fact that they're pre-product, like this is a company with 150... There's not, they have a brand book. They have a, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Very expensive logo. They have, a, they have an expensive logo and Steve Jobs, nothing else. So, $20 million in 1987 dollars. Um, so, so they start getting to figure out like what they're going to do. And so they're obviously, you know, the plan is they're just going to build the Big Mac. Um, that Jobs is working on at Apple. Um, so they rent out a big factory in Fremont, California that can produce up to 150,000 machines per year. Um, and uh, they start getting to work. Um, and as they start working on the computer, you know, they're building the hardware, they're building the software. Um, they have to revise the pricing a little bit. So they announce uh, in... Um, in 1987, that they're they're going to launch, um, and and it's going to launch at a three thousand dollar price point. Mm -hmm. So not five hundred dollars, but also not ten thousand dollars that 
you know, uh, workstations were normally at that time. So somewhat compelling. Okay. Um, as usual, they announced the launch. They announced it's going to happen. I, I believe they announced it was going to happen in 1987. It gets delayed. And yeah. it gets delayed a long time. So the company basically goes dark. Uh, and then late 1988, they emerge again with a big gala event called the Next Introduction. Now, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at the, the hallmarks of Apple and looking back in this sort of DNA of, of where they came from. Um, during the next days, you know, they're announcing price points, they're missing them. They're announcing ship dates, they're missing them. Miss, yep. that, that's not a thing that modern Apple does. They, no. they were very clearly scarred by this and, and kind of came out of it and said, that's not what we're going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, nowadays, like, Apple announces an event, like, one week before the actual event. Like, this is they announced years <laughs> right, before right. they actually launched anything. But, so, But the next gala, I mean, that sure sounds a lot like the modern Apple keynote. Yes. And this was one of the, you know, when you look at the time. So, um, this is one of the scenes in the Michael Fassbender movie. This is the middle scene, uh, this, this keynote. Uh, when it, when Jobs launches the next computer, finally. Everybody's been waiting for this. Um, it's at the uh, Symphony Hall in San Francisco, uh, and it's pretty incredible. So they have a violinist. One of the key features of the next machine, um, which, by the way, is a one-foot cube of all-black magnesium. So, <laughs> of course it is. Know, most, uh, most computers at the time, like, look super ugly, right? Like, and they're huge and like, this is also huge, but it is solid black magnesium. Um, and they have it on stage and they bring a violinist from the symphony up. And one of the key features, like I was saying, is uh, it has digital signal processing and it can play real audio for one of the first times on a computer. And, and instead of kind of the standard 8-bit, a lot of times you turn on a computer, you'd hear a beep, it would make Nintendo-like noises, very different than today. Yeah, this is real audio. And so the violinist plays a duet with the next computer on stage. Uh, and this was, um, you know, the whole gala, everybody who attended it uh, got a framed poster uh, commemorating the, you know, this monumental event, the launch of Next Computer. Um, <laughs> Talk about a lack of product market fit. For those of <laughs> us in startups today, they're thinking like, what's that killer use case that justifies yeah. you know, a user actually shelling Duets out for my violinists. product? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a very expensive tech demo. Very expensive. And also famously, also chronicled in the movie, nobody from Apple is invited to this. 3,000 people attend the event. Not a single person from Apple is allowed in the doors. That's just vengeful. <laughs> vengeful. Um, so they announce, uh, they announce the, uh, the actual device, and it's super cool. We'll link to this in the show notes. Somebody a couple years ago got their hands on one of these things, on the initial Next computer, and did an unboxing of it. It's on YouTube. It's amazing. All right. Um, put it in the show notes. It's in the show notes. Um, so, so what is this thing? They announced the specs. 25 megahertz Motorola 68030 CPU, whatever that means. 25 megahertz was a lot at the time. Has configurable from 8 megabytes up to 64 megabytes of RAM. So, like the ben the the benchmark for workstations was one megabyte of RAM. They have 8 to 64. So, knock it out of the park on that. Yep. 17 inch megapixel grayscale display. 10 base 2 Ethernet. This is a networked computer. That, um, and, and that's key, right? This, this is something that the Macintosh was not set up to do. I mean, the, the, when they had conceived of, of the Mac early on, it was, it was standalone. I mean, the Ethernet wasn't a thing. We, we, we were not living in a world with the Internet or even precursors to the Internet yet. And, and this is a, a kind of brand new idea that uh, this computer and this operating system is going to be built to network from the yeah, ground up. The Internet doesn't exist. In fact, the Internet gets invented on this computer. Which well, uh, we'll come the, to in a second. The World Wide Web. The World Wide Web, yes. Uh, but the World Wide Web did not exist. Um, and one of the features that they're most proud of about this machine is it has a 256 megabyte magneto optical drive, which uh, instead of a hard drive, they think this is better technology. Except the problem is they, they put that in, so there's no hard drive, there's no floppy drive, it's just this like big cassette thing you put in there that's like magnetic or somehow that's the only storage on the computer so you can't transfer anything off the computer because the hard drive that the operating system runs on is the thing that you plug in and out of the computer <laughs> and and jobs is like well but you had your network here on the ethernet so like that's how you transfer files right but like nobody 
else's on the <laughs> network. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Right. It's like you, you know where you want to be skating, you know where the puck is going, but there's no ice between you and there. Yeah. This is like removing the headphone jack in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> um, they realized pretty quickly after launch that that's a bad idea, and they ship a new version with an actual hard drive and a floppy disk drive. So they, they fixed that. Um, but more importantly, and, and here's where we start to get into, like, what is the real value of Next? Um, the software and the operating system that they created Next over these couple years is just incredible. I mean, there's the moment from when Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs launches the iPhone in 2007 in the super famous presentation. He says, it's five years ahead of anything the competition is doing on the market. This was at least five years ahead. Next Step, uh, Next Step is the operating system that Jobs, that uh, Next made for the computer. It's at least five, if not a decade, ahead of anything else anyone's doing. Yeah, so it's worth talking about kind of the technology innovations that that yep. uh, came out of Next, or at least that Next uh, put into production for the first time. A lot of it dates back to when uh, Steve Jobs was at Apple and got the the preview from Xerox Park yep. of what the research technologies were that they'd been working on. And famously, it's the graphical user interface and the mouse. This is the when Steve Jobs raids Xerox Park in Palo Alto and and steals the the graphical user interface, and that becomes the Mac. Uh, that, that's what Ben's referring to. Yeah, and, and so you know the, the Mac gets that right. The, for the yeah. first time, there's um, you know Bill Gates famously kind of freaked out at the demo, watching the the drawing on screen uh, where the Mac is moving the mouse and it's moving around slowly. And Steve's saying, you know, I, I yes, we got this from Xerox Park. What what they didn't kind of um, pull from that was object-oriented programming. Yeah. So in, in traditional programming, like you look at uh, the, the way that, that DOS was running, uh, there's routines, and it's moving, um, it's, it's, it's kind of advancing linearly, there's branching to subroutines, and for the first time with object-oriented programming, um, you have the ability for software to model real-world objects. And so, you know, this dog has properties, and has methods you can call yeah. on those properties, like bark, or like back up, or like walk forward. And this was only really embodied in small talk at the time, which was not a, not a very yeah. popular language. Well, and um, at the to not dive too deep into the technical details here, but, but yeah. essentially this is like all modern software right. is now written this way. Right. Uh, I mean, and and it, it, the idea of creating software technology using, you know, old linear non-object oriented programming like you just like wouldn't do it that'd be like trying to like drive across country in like you know a golf cart like <laughs> right. you wouldn't do it so so the 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 kind of um breakthrough here is by using objective c which is incredible how long that that has actually lived um licensed at uh, at next and then eventually became kind of the core tool set that's used to now develop mac applications and and uh, ios applications you know swift is is being adopted but objective c is C is still the bread and butter of um, Apple software development. It enabled Next to use, move much faster yep. than uh, than traditional programming methods, and for people to build much more complex programs that they would be than and, they would and, otherwise. And Steve has this great quote. So when he finally comes back to Apple after the acquisition a couple years later, um, the first time he's on stage at the first Apple keynote, right after Apple acquires Next, this is January '97. Um, January '97. He he says, "I want to tell you guys a story." Steve's famous for telling a story, and he says, you know, when I went, this is a quote from him, when I went to Xerox Park in 1979 and saw the original genesis of the graphical user interface there, they actually showed me three things, um, and I was so blinded by the first that I didn't hang around to find out about the other two, and it took me years to rediscover them. The first, of course, was the graphical user interface, but the other two things, the second was object-oriented programming. They had it all running back in 1979, uh, and the third was networking. They had several hundred Altos. Alto was the computer that the concept computer that Xerox Park had designed. They had several hundred Altos hooked up to network printing, network file service, email, all in 1979. If I'd only stayed there for another 20 minutes, <laughs> yeah, it's it's he's making a joke, but. Um, but he what he realizes, and this kind of goes back to what he was trying to do with the Big Mac, um, it's the combination of those three things. Uh, it's the graphical user interface. It's object-oriented programming that allows software developers to develop really powerful, very useful graphical programs for the first time. And then it's networking. And that's what's going to enable this new wave of computing. Um, and it, it's, it's probably worth fast-forwarding at this point. Yeah. So, so next... 
kind of cuts their losses. There, there comes a point where Next says, you know what, this hardware thing, it's hard. Um, we have extremely expensive computers that aren't se selling very well. They only ever uh, sold 50,000 units in total. And, and, they and were, by the way, when the thing finally came out to retail, guess how much it cost? Sound, uh, 10 grand? $10,000, yeah. which was the price that all workstations <laughs> cost at the time. So nobody buys these things. Yeah. Um, so, so Next decides, okay, we're, we're going to be a software company. And what they do is they kind of separate out Next Step, which was the, the operating system. Um, and then they had kind of uh, the, the mock kernel underneath, which they sort of brought in-house. They separated that out and they said, okay, we're just going to start selling this thing to other computer manufacturers, yep. right? We're not going to be the, what we know of Apple today is, is an entirely vertically integrated software and hardware company. They're moving away from that. It's just software. And that was kind of in vogue during that time because that's when uh, the, the Mac was in the era of the clones. I yep. mean, the, the um, Mac OS ran on other people's hardware, which is totally you know, mind-blowing for the, yep. those of us today who know, well, what do you mean? iOS only runs on iPhones. Yep. And, um, uh, but it's super important and, and because of the power of this operating system. And you know, we, we mentioned earlier, but just to give a sense of like, what is the real implication of this power, the World Wide Web is invented on this operating system, on a next computer, actually. So Tim Berners-Lee at CERN invents the World Wide Web, and it's possible because of object-oriented programming and networking, obviously. Right. Um, and, and, and also, fun, uh, other uh, history of this computer, uh, John Carmack at id Software, John's now the CTO, I believe, of Oculus, um, John wrote uh, the video game Doom, uh, video games Doom, Quake, and Wolfenstein 3D on all next. on Next. Wow. Which is amazing. Wow, wow. I didn't uh, and those know that. were the first like 3D games that, you know, ever, uh, you know, equally revolutionized the game industry. Yep. Um, so that's the power that this enables. Yeah, and it's interesting kind of t taking a step back and realizing, okay, so very clear recognition of the technologies that were going to be transformational and, and really like the foundation of what the future of computing will be, um, really unable to bring it to market in a uh, meaningful way at Next. I mean, the, uh, all the ideas were right. All the, the way that they, you know, brought a product to customers, you know, you can chalk it up to timing, you can chalk it up to price, like just, just wrong, just poorly executed. And so they needed an out. Yep, they needed it out, and so they they pivoted eventually to just selling software. They stopped selling hardware. Uh, they do that in 1993. Um, it's funny. One of the pieces of software they come out with is, is this thing called Web Objects, which is one of the first internet application servers. Uh, and Dell actually builds their e-commerce site on it. So when you bought a Dell, you're <laughs> yep. like, dude, you're getting a Dell. Like that was powered by Next. In the <laughs> and, yeah, ba basically, what Web Objects do is they make it so that you know how you go to a website and it's not always the same as every other time you go to that website. It's got dynamic content on it. Web Web Objects was like the first ever um, system to do that. And and this thing is like still in use. So the iTunes store, people wonder why iTunes like is so <laughs> clunky and slow and crappy today. It still runs on web objects, which is insane. Yeah, the, um, for the any of the iOS developers and the Mac developers listening, uh, for better or for worse, a lot of these technologies have, have stayed with us for a, a very, very long time. For a very time. long time. So finally, you know, meanwhile, while this is going on, Apple is just like... They have lost their way. Yeah. Um, they are getting creamed in the market. Uh, on the PC front, it's, this is the era of Windows uh, in the early 90s to mid-90s. Windows 3.0, then Windows 95. Just absolute Apple's dominance. getting decimated. They have no offering for enterprises uh, in the workstation market, which is cooling down, but like still a huge, huge market. Um, and and all of NT was doing phenomenally well. Steve Jobs in, in 97 stands up on stage in January and, you know, praises um, the, the incredible Microsoft advancements and, brought by Microsoft and NT yep. and says, Apple, what's Apple been doing? We've fallen behind. Yep. And of course, easy for him to blame while well, he's not at the company, but, you know, incredible to be but he was totally right. Yep. And so Apple's casting about, they're trying to create a next generation operating system. By this point in time, everybody's recognized the power of what we're talking about, and Apple just can't do it. They have two competing projects, three at, at various points, trying to build a modern operating system. They all fail. It's, it's wild to think about. I mean, you can chalk it up to organizational politics, or you can chalk it up to the t technology just being incredibly hard, but 
Um, they, they were building an operating system code name, uh, I think Copeland was the, yep. the first version, and then it was, they were going to have a second release called Gershwin. Um, there, there was a kind of projects going on in parallel for how are we going to build a, a next generation operating system, and they, they just couldn't do it. And yep. honestly, it, it, it kind of reminds me of the Longhorn days at Microsoft. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it turns out operating systems are hard and organizations are even harder. Yep. And so you, you look at Apple and um, eventually they, they kind of said, okay, enough is enough. Um, we're going to look elsewhere to try and buy. And they, they so had a couple options. They had a couple options um, for a modern operating system they could buy to replace Mac OS X, uh, OS 9. Uh, it, was, it was System 7 at the system, time. Right, right, right. The, the future operating system was supposed to be Mac OS 8, which ended up just being an incremental bump, and then OS 9, which was another incremental bump. Yep. And then finally, what they were envisioning for years, not even until 2001, um, was, was Mac OS 10. Yeah, and so... So in end of just before Christmas, 1996, they buy Next. Uh, Steve Jobs for 429 million dollars um, that uh, go to Next shareholders, uh, including Ross Perot, um, and uh, and separately one and a half million shares of Apple stock that go to Steve Jobs. Yeah. So David, you want to talk about that as a VC? What's you know uh, based on a return on invested capital? How was the Next exit? Well. Over its lifetime, Next raised, um, so they raised the money from Jobs, they raised the money from Ross Perot. Uh, Canon, the large camera, printer, computer manufacturer, ends up investing another kind of 100 to $130 million in the company as well. So they got sold for more money than they raised, but like not that much more money. Like this was not a home run eggs. Like nobody was getting rich off, uh, off Next. Um, and Steve gets one and a half million shares of Apple stock because he's going to come on board at Apple as a consultant. Um, so he's uh, uh, he's going to you know come and like help Apple with this transition is the official plan. Right. And so the acquisition closes in February 1997, and um, Steve's a consultant. And and some of these uh, events that we were talking about, he comes on stage and he you know clearly like the dichotomy between how Steve talks about the future and his vision and how Gil Emilio, who was the CEO of Apple at the time, who, you know, looked like he actually was like quite technical and a bit at Fairchild Semiconductor and all that, but he looked like he'd never met a developer in his life. Like, <laughs> um, Yeah, when you watch their uh, keynotes, just kind of going back and watching a lot of these old keynotes over again um, and in preparing for this podcast, it is incredible to see the dichotomy between Gil standing up there and not really commanding the audience's attention and saying things that... Um, like, it's so important for Apple to, you know, court our core audience and developers. Right. It's you just, know, it's, it's, like, it's not taking a position on anything. And, yeah. you know, we, we've all seen um, managers like that or leaders like that that, uh, you know, don't really take a side and you walk out and you're like, well, I didn't disagree with any of that, but I wasn't inspired. And then Steve comes on stage for, you know, just a few minutes to say like, hey, here's where I think we're going. And it's just captivating. You know, it's night and day and like huge applause. And um, so pretty quickly, acquisition closes in February. Over the July 4th weekend, Steve convinces the board of Apple that Gil has no idea what he's doing yeah. and he needs to go. And the next week, Apple, fire, the board fires Gil. So the company doesn't have a CEO. They start a CEO search. Um, and uh, really, there's only one candidate. <laughs> and uh, September of 1997, Steve Jobs is uh, instated as the interim the, the iCEO. The iCEO, the interim CEO of Apple. And he remained interim CEO until 2000. Uh, so for three years, he was interim CEO. Um, now, now, while he's interim CEO, the, the board doesn't exactly stay intact, right? He's, uh, the, I, yeah, he, he basically, he takes those three years. And, and it ultimately takes five years from the time Apple acquires next for OS X to come out. So they spend five years building... Uh, taking the next operating system and baking it into uh, the full product of the Mac. Um, but during that time, I mean, Steve, like, there's the technical and product challenges of shipping that, but he cleans house and completely yeah. revamps Apple. Um, uh, well, there's there's a good. I, I was um, I looked up the article that came up on CNET uh, the, the day that the acquisition was announced and kind of how people were billing it at the time. And uh, kind of awesome that like. When this acquisition happened, CNET like existed, was a website, was and, a and news organization. And still archives. And of... like the World Wide Web was invented on Next computers five years earlier. <laughs> oh, you know? Yeah, like... I know, I know. So the uh, 
the thing that, that uh, they say in the article is next cross-platform development environments in the enterprise and internet and intranet space allow developers to write once and deploy across a range of internet and client server platforms. Amelia so said that Apple expects to ship products with it with the next operating system in 1997. That's the same year that the acquisition closed. So yeah. <laughs> uh, the way that Amelia was looking at this is, you know, we're going to get this company. We're going to start kind of integrating their technologies. We're going to keep yeah, we'll shipping our this products. this OS into our hardware, like no big deal. <laughs> it, yeah. And, and, you know, what we know today is like it didn't ship in 97 or 98 or 90. Like it, it shipped in 2001. And by that point, Apple had dramatically less products. I mean, yep. this is the this is the time where you know there's, there's developers uh, at uh, 1997 Worldwide Developer Conference in in July, six months after he, after the acquisition closed, saying to Steve, "Hey, so you know, uh, I worked on OpenDoc for many years, and we've invested a lot in it. Uh, what you know, what about OpenDoc?" And and Steve says, "Yeah, yeah, a lot of you worked on things that um, we had to put a bullet in the head of." And uh, I feel your pain and continues to go on and then paint the story of like Apple has no focus. Focus is about saying no. Um, we're doing all these different things. It's not iterative improvements that we need to do. It's, it's like dramatic, dramatic changes. So what's really interesting is to look at screenshots from Next uh, or, or Next Step or actually OpenStep, the operating system that they ended up implementing. Um, and you look at OS X today or, or even steps along the way. Yeah. It is incredible how many pieces of next you can find in or of next step you can find in in mac os 10 i mean you look at at, at next and it had a dock nothing else had a dock at the time that was yep. like a, a new ui paradigm it's amazing how many pieces of next you can find in your iphone right in your apple watch like you right know, See, uh, in, it's there in 97 steve is is demoing um the next step development tool chain and he's like here's interface builder and here's all these tools that people still use today to to develop iphone apps so the very core fundamentals of of what makes um the the what made the iphone possible came from the next acquisition yep um so at this point you know wrapping up the history and facts which was very long but these stories are just we love stories on this show and like and this is one of the best this is one of the greatest of all time uh and um so we all know what happens steve comes back um 2001 they launch os 10 uh they launch the ipod when did they launch the iPod? Was it also 2001, I think, when they launched yep. the iPod? Yep. They launched the iPod, then they launched the iPhone, then they launched the iPad, then they launched the Apple, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, um, Apple TV. And it's all next. The incredible thing is, yeah, the, the, when they first launched um, the iPhone, they say, and it runs OS ten. That was a big selling point. This is not a, you know, a phone like we know phones today with an embedded operating system. This is a computer in your pocket. And to prove it, it's running a variant of the operating system that exists on your computers. Yep. And that, that was like huge and ridiculous. And like people at BlackBerry didn't believe it. They'd look at the scroll performance and say, you can't do that on a yep. phone. Like there's, we just don't believe you. And so I think that um, when you look at the this was before it was dubbed iOS. Okay, it was a variant of OS X. And then when they launched, you know, the uh, the the iPad, they say, and we're renaming it iOS. It runs on the iPhone and the iPad. Then they launched the watch. Then they launched the TV. All these things are are kind of built off that same uh, Darwin kernel and the the um the the core of what they acquired in uh, in Next. Yep, and uh, and there we go. The rest, as they say, is history. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. 
There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. Let's move on to our next segment of the show, uh, which is acquisition category. Yeah, uh, this will be this will be a fun one. What do you think? Well, it, and what we do is we categorize the acquisition into. We've got a couple of categories, and we decide which it represents. Yeah, so we normally decide if something's a product acquisition, a business line acquisition, a people acquisition, um, which oftentimes happens in kind of like aqua hires. Uh, a technology acquisition is it a core piece of technology that's not productized? Or is it, you know, other? Um, is, it, is it some new thing? And when you look at this, like Apple had been trying to create a technology that they really couldn't create. It was a next generation operating system with multitasking, with networking, with protected memory, all these different things. But it, it, it's not the technology they acquired. You'd be silly to make the case that this was anything but, but Steve Jobs. I mean, this is like... This is, <laughs> this like is the, a great the, slide. <laughs> the ultimate people acquisition. Oh, yeah. Gil Emilio is listing all the reasons they acquired Next. The, and yeah, slide. the CEO at the time, literally at... Is it at Macworld, I think? Yeah. Has this slide on stage. He's presenting these slides about you know, rationale for the next acquisition. And he has like all this stuff that they're getting. Then he flips to the next slide. And it just says Steve Jobs. It's yeah. like the only thing on <laughs> the, the only slide. Thing on the like slide. <laughs> reasons we acquired next. So, I mean, I, I, yes, we're still using in, uh, next technologies today. Um, yes, they were incredibly forward thinking, but the company needed Steve back. Yep. Um, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, Steve is, um, I'm, I'm just surprised. I mean, like I've read all the books about him. Uh, I've watched so many of his keynotes. I've watched all the movies about him. Every time I read it, and, and this just like going in and doing a lot of this primary source research, um, this is going to be my tech theme later, but but I am just so struck by like his level of thinking. You know, um, It is so rare that you see, that you find something like that. And when you watch this keynote with Gil on stage and Steve on stage at the same time, and like I said, Gil was... He was a Fairchild semiconductor. He yeah. had been, you know, a longtime technology CEO. Yeah, he, um, he turned he, around uh, National Semiconductor. He's yeah, credited he turned around with... National Semiconductor. You know, he looks like a child compared to this guy. Like, <laughs> well. it's like, uh, you know, it's, uh, Steve is just a man among boys, you know, at the, or, a, you know, a person among small people. <laughs> yeah, Spe- special guy. We miss him. Um, totally. Okay. So, so you want to go into uh, what would have happened otherwise? Yeah, this is fun. Uh so what would have happened otherwise? I think it'd be fun to talk about the other option that Apple had. Yeah, so uh, Jean-Louis Gasset was uh, an Apple employee who kind of opened, uh, opened Europe to Apple. Uh, he, he came in in the early days, knew Steve Jobs well, um, left Apple to start his, his own company. Uh, well, called- before he left Apple, when Steve got fired and left Apple... Jean uh, took over the Supermicro division. He literally replaced Steve Jobs. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, he literally replaced. So this is a, he's, he's French, Jean-Louis. Um, great guy. He has a blog now, which is awesome, Monday yep. Note. Um, and he, he replaced Steve Jobs. Uh, but wow. then he left and started his own company. So two people that both kind of walked through that that revolving door of that division of Apple both went and started very, very similar companies. Yeah. And uh, B... Um, which which created BOS uh, was kind of the other the other candidate they they were vetting um, other than Next and ultimately uh, the reason that uh, that Apple didn't end up making that that acquisition of B you know number one uh, the, I, I continue to go back to the fact that they all sort of knew they needed Steve back but um, they just they just couldn't come to the same uh, agreement on price Jean Louis wanted three hundred million for the company Apple I think was willing to shell out one twenty one twenty five somewhere Something in there like that yeah and uh, and they just couldn't get the deal done uh, as with you know many other deals I'm sure a lot of our listeners have uh, been involved with yeah um, but kind of amazing that like there were these two operating systems that Apple could have acquired and and should have <laughs> built in house right like both of those leaders were, like, <laughs> had been sh- at Apple right like, they, they were <laughs> chartered with building this and the organizational yeah. politics at Apple at the time didn't let it happen didn't let it happen this is why Steve Jobs hated politics D- did you see that Next was planning an IPO yes 
Ha- that was one of the kind of bargaining chips on the table. Yeah, so th- this company that you know finally had had actually um, has a product out there, this operating system that um, you know is not the the business that they were were hoping to build, but is is a, a decent business. Um, you know, is planning to IPO later in the year, and and we don't know if that actually would have happened, but it is interesting that that's an alternate future for. Yeah. Uh, um. I think there's, there must have been a little bit of Steve Jobs reality distortion field there too. Like how they could have gone public. I mean, they had a, uh, they eventually became profitable as a software only business, but like they were not making a lot of money. No. Um, but he was Steve Jobs. Right. Um, anyway, so they ended up getting acquired obviously by Apple, not, not going public, but that would have been interesting had they. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to paint this picture as, uh, next had a fighting chance, but probably would not have done very well in the long term. And I don't think Apple would be in business. Yeah, no. Like, they were getting creamed. Yeah. I mean, there was that famous quote, right? Um, who said, was it Michael, Michael Dell? Dell yeah. said that, like, they should just shut down the company and give the money back to shareholders. <laughs> like, they were just getting creamed. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Tech themes? Tech themes. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, the, the big one for me is like, you hear this all the time in investor pitches. It's, it's all about the people. Um, I, I think this is one that's just so clearly illustrative of, uh, you, you, we often talk about like 10x engineers. Sometimes there's just like 10x leaders and, and mm-hmm. people that, um, that are truly inspiring. And then the other part of that is, is uh, how much of a difference it makes to have the founder of a company leading that company, that, that they command a different level of respect from employees. And when they say, this is our strategy, People, people believe it and people do crazy things and, and march to those orders. And the other thing that I was kind of thinking about in this is Steve makes a plea to developers to, to start building on this new operating system that they're building mm-hmm. that will eventually yeah. s- sort of in some forked way become Mac OS X. And you don't like win, as Microsoft can see with Windows Phone recently or, or a lot of people trying to start sort of like competing app stores and things like that, it's really hard to win over a developer ecosystem. And it's really hard to say, you know, developers, we're open for business. This is a platform for you. And and Steve managed to really like make the plea in a very authentic way and say, hey, everyone who's a Mac developer, why don't you come and, and, and you know, you, you're going to have to rewrite a lot of stuff because this is very different, but make a bet on us and develop yep. your applications well, we can for, give you this for Mac power, OS X. Uh, this power in this operating system that you couldn't have otherwise. Right, um, right. But that, t- to me, it's like the power, the, the, the power of a founder there. And then once you have yeah. um, uh, like a tipping point in, in the network effects that come from building an ecosystem on a platform that you can kind of just keep rolling with that and the, the big uh, bargaining chip that affords you. Yep. Um, that perfectly dovetails with, I have two tech themes for, um, on the show we do, this is actually my favorite segment of the show. We, we, we talk about having gone through this whole history, like what are some like eternal truths about just the way like business technology startups, you know, have, you know, operate that we can kind of pull out of this. Um, and, uh, I have two, the first one is just what you were saying, Ben, is that, um, the, or related to what you're saying in technology, like there's this concept of like iteration, not just iteration, but like you're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants and this, a lot of the history and facts, like we talked about a lot of pretty deeply technical stuff, like object oriented programming and networking and workstations. And like, you think about tech companies today, it's like Snapchat and like, you know, messaging and interacting with your friends and like spectacles and like doing this amazing stuff and flying drones and like, um, but all that's only possible because of these like building blocks at the operating system level at the deep geeky stuff um, that needed to be built and installed first. So, so that, that's one. Um, but two is something I've been thinking a lot about also related to your f- first one. Um, like what made Steve what he was, right? Um, and in our, we haven't released our last episode yet, but we did, we interviewed um, Kathleen Phillips, uh, who's the CFO of Zillow, talking about the Truly acquisition. Um, and in uh, a follow-up on that, we talked about Snapchat spectacles. And I referenced this tweet that we both read that, that I thought was super cool that Bill Gurley uh, had, had retweeted um, and commented on when Snapchat announced spectacles. And John Collison, who's uh, one of the brothers who's the co-founder of Stripe, uh, he tweeted, 
Quote, I'm always impressed by how flamboyantly original Snapchat are. Ghost codes, invisible UI, filters, sunglasses. And Gurley responds and he says, uh, that's a really great thing to identify and recognize. And I've been thinking about that because I totally agree. But like, what is that originality? And it's not really exactly originality. Like, um, like there were QR codes before Snapchat did them. Mm-hmm. There were in fact glasses. Snapchat acquired a company. To they do acquired that. a company doing it. There were glasses you wore on your face, <laughs> right? And that took video before Snapchat spectacles. Um, you know, there were messengers before them. They weren't first, but they were the first thus far, and we'll see how spectacles perform. Um, the first to make like a real product that just works and is delightful and solves a need for a user. Um, and I think that's what this originality means. And that's what Steve was, right? Like object-oriented programming, all this stuff existed at Xerox Park before Next. Um, object-oriented programming, networking, like all this stuff was out there, workstations, blah, blah. But like it was technology. It wasn't a product. Right. It wasn't something that like you plugged it in and it just worked and it delighted you and it solved your need. And... Um, and I think that's like, I don't know, I've just been noodling, especially like as a VC, like this is what we look for. So many times we meet, we meet founders, we meet companies, and they're doing something cool that's hard technically. And the question is just like, okay, like the, the question I always ask is like, what data do you have? What signal do you have that people want this? And so many times you get this like blank stare back, you know? <laughs> like, well, what do you mean? This was never possible before. Yeah. It's like, well, that's not what I asked. That's not what I asked. Like, why are people going to use this? Um, and I think that's what these, you know, whether it's Evan Spiegel at Snapchat, whether it's Steve Jobs, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, any of these or, or Instagram, right? Like Instagram was not the first app that made your photos look good. No. Hipstamatic made your photos look good. Yep. But that's not Instagram, you know, like it's... It's building this whole solution um, and having the vision to do that. And I think it's, you know, it's a famously difficult task to take hard, complicated problems that are solved in yep. sort of research lab-like environments and get those into a mass market product. I mean, you look at, let's, let's take two super famous examples. You know, Microsoft has like hundreds or a thousand of uh, PhDs at Microsoft Research that do incredible work and do pioneering research. And they try their best to partner with, uh, with product teams, but it's, it's you know not uh, super often that one of those things gets surfaced in a product in a big way. And, you know, the, uh, the company's growing and it's doing, getting way better at that, but it's, it's like a famously difficult problem to sit in the organization in the right way to make your kind of very forward-looking things that may dangerously obsolete your current thing, um, you, you know, something that you uh, bring back into product. And in yep. fact, when Apple, my second example is when, when Steve went back to Apple, they had kind of an advanced technology division. And that was purely for the, it was a, it was a research lab. It was people that were kind of playing around with like, what if we could get this into a computer at some point? And dis, you know, dismantled that. Yeah, and, Steve killed that. And, and the, that's totally the opposite of what we're talking about. Right, you like, want to get those things into product and yep. kind of reorganized and said, look, everybody who's doing that pioneering research, you need to be doing it with the lens of how are we going to build this into this product and how does it fit into the story of this product that we're trying to ship. Yep, and I think that's what's, that is what is so scarce in technology, um, in startups, uh, and in, um, you know, in, in business, like the ability to take a, a potentiality, whether it's technology or something else, and turn that into a product that like just works and that people want. Um, it's so scarce. And, and I think that's what, you know, for all of Steve's foibles and all his craziness and like, he was just so good at that. Um, and it's it's impressive. So yeah. Um, okay, should we wrap this one up? You want to grade it? <sighs> Let's grade it. <laughs> we were we were going back and forth on text over this last night. Yeah. So, um, our, a couple episodes ago, we did the Android acquisition by Google, and uh, you look and you can kind of figure out the the main reason t- for Android to be there is to make it so that um, when people are searching on mobile. Uh, they're not always searching from iPhones, and Google doesn't have to pay Apple for all those searches. So that saves them. That gives them like four billion dollars a year in revenue they otherwise would have had to, to give up. Big number, right? Like for for kind of a small acquisition. So I want to like talk about the next acquisition and what it did for Apple in the the context of that being an A plus of kind of like saving the company $4 billion a year. Um, there was leaked things in the Oracle trial that, that Android as a division has made about $31 billion um, since, being, uh, since being acquired. When you look at the things that have happened at Apple since the next acquisition, 
it's it, it's like a, a a sci-fi story compared <laughs> to those numbers. Like if if that was our bar for A plus, uh, Apple does like two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year in revenue now, and. <laughs> Like probably would have gone out of business. Number one, if 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 this acquisition didn't happen, they're the most valuable company in the world, as as David said. Um, not only would they have like gone out of business, and now this reverse course, the the technology that they acquired in Next is core and fundamental to every single product that they ship today. It's the core of the Mac, the core of all the iOS devices, everything we've been talking about. And I mean, developers who who are listening to this will like you use Interface Builder and like Steve demoed Interface Builder as a feature of the next development platform in 1997. I mean, these, these things continue to ship. Yep. And it, it is the, it, we were talking about this before the show. Apple has done approximately a trillion dollars in revenue. Since Steve came back. Since yeah. Steve came back. Give or take, give, give or take a billion, you know, a uh, trillion. I, I, <laughs> it's like GDP style. <laughs> I know, I know. And I wish, I wish we had, um, you know, we have nothing higher to give than an A+, plus, but yeah. this is by far the best acquisition uh, we, we've ever looked at and I, I think probably ever will look at. Yeah, um, it is hard to argue with that. I mean, what's, what's funny, like, <laughs> it's so, this is such a, like, illustrates, like, it's better to be lucky than good, you know? <laughs> like, Gil Emilio completed the single greatest acquisition of all time gil emilio <laughs> who is gil emilio you know like he's uh, he's the george lazenby of apple ceos <laughs> exactly like um nothing against gil emilio but like what's so funny is like he didn't see any of this like this was not some brilliantly crafted move on his part like brilliantly crafted on steve's part but um but yeah i mean like this is just the sheer numbers you cannot argue I don't think you can argue that this isn't the greatest acquisition of all time. I mean, it literally created a trillion dollars in revenue. Um, <laughs> like, that's just goofy. That's like, like a fake uh, number. That's a fake number. We, when we were texting last night, I was like, I texted Ben. I was like, it's like, you know, they were, you were like. You mean Steve, we iMessaged last yeah, night? Yeah, we, we iMessaged last night. And, uh, you know, it's like Steve changed the game on the field. And it's like, yeah, like, like they were playing football. And like Apple was like behind by like 30 points in the fourth quarter. And Steve like ran a play that scored a thousand point touchdown. Like, you know, you just can't, uh, you can't forget. So yeah, A plus like for sure. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Um, well. All right. Uh, you want to talk about carve-outs? Yeah, let's do carve-outs quickly. Cool. Um, go ahead. Uh, this really made me think. It was a great podcast I listened to in the last week. Uh, the Ezra Klein Show is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, he interviews people. He's the uh, creator and editor-in-chief at Vox, I believe. And he um, he has great guests on that range from all different walks of life. And, of course, I, uh, I listen to the episodes that are particularly nerdy. And so he had Stuart Butterfield on, who is the mm. creator of Flickr and now Slack. And uh, Stuart's just a phenomenally interesting character with a philosophy background and raises a lot of really interesting points um, uh, about Slack, about how they got there, about the founder journey, um, a, a lot about the similarities and differences of, um, you know, he started two companies that started as a kind of crazy out there, never ending game and ended up being a super widely, aduce, uh, widely used consumer product. And talking about sort of how how they got there, and one of the interesting points that he brought up was that um, when they were building what would eventually become Slack, um, I, they they used IRC and then built all kinds of tools on top of IRC. Um, hmm. I didn't know they used IRC. Th- yeah, they actually did. Ah, so all this crit- criticism of like it's just IRC, like it actually is just IRC. So when they were st- when they were starting out building that. Um, Snapchat's just QR codes. Like, I, you know, I know, right? This is the point. They, they, they had a team of developers, and it was three technical co-founders and um, someone else they hired, and they would encounter these problems with chat when it was like, okay, we should build something to make this chat thing a little better. So they'd pull those developers off of product, and they'd you know spend a couple cycles and, and make their their thing that would become Slack a little bit better, and then they'd, they'd go back. And then they'd kind of, it had a lot of bake time. They'd, they'd use it mm. for like three or four months, and then they'd go in and say, ah, we actually need to make it a little bit better. And they'd go and make it a little bit better. And when you compare that sort of product development where a person is um, solving their own need very, very directly and an acute pain point with the way that product organizations often work, which is like the PM will propose the product and they'll have the spec and there'll be divergent ideas and people mm-hmm. will argue over it. There's a lot more ego in the room. Mm-hmm. And what Stuart's thrown out there is, you know, when when we're just trying to solve our own problems and like 
nobody wins by having our internal tool be better, except that sort of everyone wins. There's a lot less ego in the equation, and it's kind of an interesting way to develop software. And you know, we're not all going to go and set out to um, start very expensive, uh, uh, never-ending games to to create a different product. But it is like interesting to think about how can we how can we kind of spoof that environment where we're uh, we're all users of the product, we're all using it to solve our own pain point internally, and uh, take the ego out of the equation. Hmm. That's super cool. I got to listen to. Uh to that pocket, the Ezra Klein show. Ezra Klein show with awesome. guest Stuart Butterfield. Awesome. Um, mine for the week is this super fun uh, Verge, an eye-opening Verge article, big uh, investigative piece that they did last week or the week before um, on DJI, uh, the drone company. Uh, DJI released or announced their new product, the Mavic Pro. This thing is amazing. It's the size of a water bottle, <laughs> and it's a drone, and it flies for 27 minutes. You can fly it four and a half miles away from you with rock solid 1080p video. Whoa. You know, it fits in your pocket. Like, it's amazing. Um, but they went and they were like, you know, did this profile. Like, what is DJI? It's this company. It's based in Shenzhen. Um, and uh, who are they? How do they hire? And it turns out that DJI runs this robot wars competition. So, like, you ever seen, like, BattleBots? You oh, know? yeah. Um, they do a university competition in China um, that's, like, the most coolest battle bots you've ever seen. And they get teams from 200 universities in China to create teams. And this is like, you know, NCAA football of China. Uh, and, um, and then they come, they work, work for, you know, forever. And then they come and they compete and the winners, DJI just tires them. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so they get like the smartest people uh, and this is all about like robotics and, and machine vision and autonomously operated robots. So like you can, the rules of the game are that you can't see what's happening on the field. You have to rely on your robot sensors and most of it's autonomously driven. Hmm. Um, and they fight each other and their goals and stuff. Um, and so as a result, DJI now has like, I don't know, like over a thousand PhDs working on computer <laughs> vision and machine understanding and that's all baked into stuff like enabling this drone, you know, the size of a water bottle, uh, that you can do stuff like you can just tap on yourself on the image and then it'll track you. Like it knows who you are. Wow. It can follow you as you run around and um, it won't crash into anything. It has sense and avoid. All just done with computer vision. Um, and it was like this glimpse of the future. Uh, and, and then when they interview Frank Wang, the CEO of DJI, he's like, yeah, this is about robotics. Like drones, like... It's our, like, first product, but we're going to build robots that are going to, like, do agriculture and, like, serve you in restaurants. Like, all this stuff. Um, This is, like, the future of robotics. It felt a little bit like, you know, Steve Jobs' Xerox Park moment. Uh, it uh, It was pretty cool. Nice. So we'll link to it in the show notes. We will. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the Internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks uh, especially to the GeekWire folks for having us and for setting this all up. Really appreciate it. 
And um, if you're new to the show and would like to uh, subscribe, find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast client. Tweet at us at AcquiredFM. And um, yeah, have a good one. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.